Well, hello, everyone. How you doing? Yeah, what a, it's, if you're not doing, doing well up here, then there's something wrong, right? We need to, to be able to just rejoice in this place where God has created, and it's so easy to kind of get in touch with who He is and our relationship with Him. It's wonderful to be up here. I always enjoy being here. Um, before I got into teaching and our, our kind of introducing the series and what we're going to talk about tonight, I thought I'd just tell you a little more about me. I, it always kind of connects, especially if you're going to be coming back here uh, over the next few days it, to get to know each other is, uh, is a great way to uh, kind of sharpen and encourage one another in the faith. So I am a first-generation believer. I came to Christ when I was 16. My brother uh, was very influential in leading me to Christ. He gave his life to Jesus uh, when he was in college. Some guy with Campus Crusade just walked up to him and said, have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? And my brother said, no. He sat down and shared the four spiritual laws, which is an evangelistic tract put out by Campus Crusade, written by Bill Bright. And my brother prayed to receive Christ and was one of those guys born running. And so that happened sometime in the fall. And then at Christmas time, he came home and we're sitting there for the first night that he came back and he said, I got something to tell everybody. And we're, you know, sitting around the dinner table and said, yeah. He goes, I've, I've become a born-again Christian, you know. And it was just like taking the, the needle on the old kind of record player or fingers on the chalkboard. It's like, and it was like nobody knew what to do. I was just like eating in mid-sentence. It's like, you know, are you going to shave your head? Are you going to hand out Bibles, give flowers to people on the airport? I had no context for even understanding what he meant when he said he'd become a born-again Christian. But for that next two-week vacation period, I did find out because I was his little project. So he would share the gospel with me every chance he get, uh, he could get. And then when he went back to college, he gave me a copy of the Four Spiritual Laws. I threw it up on my dresser, and it sat there for a couple of weeks, and I didn't look at it. And I was uh, lifting weights with a buddy of mine who I played football with, and we were lifting weights in, in, my, gar in my garage. And I said, you know, my brother's become one of these born-again Christians. And uh, my brother was really successful out of high school and played football and, and, and uh, baseball in college. And so it was well known in our community. And my buddy said, yeah, but, you know, gosh, there's got to be something to it if your brother thinks that's, the, that's what you ought to believe. And I said, yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. And we, so without knowing it, he and I started talking about the gospel with what little my brother told me and what he knew growing up, and we both decided we'd start reading through the New Testament and figure out what we believed. And, uh, you know, I, I love when people say that they're going to they're gonna do that. I like to give people what I call a 21-day challenge, which is read through the Gospel of John in 21 days because there are 21 chapters. You take a chapter a day and read it because I've never had anybody take that challenge and not actually become a Christian. I've had people who say they start and then they don't finish, but it's like the, the Word just speaks to people, right? So... My buddy and I both started reading the Bible, and both of us, within the next, you know, three or four weeks, gave our lives to Christ. I had picked up the, the track that my brother gave me, setting up on the dresser, Four Spiritual Laws, and read through it, and there was a sinner's prayer in the back, and I prayed to invite Christ into my life. I was 16 when I did that. That was the greatest decision that, that I ever made, and um, went off to college. At that time, I thought I was going to uh, be a high school football coach. I played football and got to play football in college and thought I'd be a teacher and a, and a high school football coach and thought, you know, being a PE teacher was a pretty big 
That's a good gig, you know. Just hand out footballs and volleyballs to people and tell them to go do something. Then you go back and read magazines in the locker room. That's what my football coach did in high school, so I thought, hey, I could do that. Uh, but uh, when I got to college, I went to San Jose State, and I got involved with Campus Crusade myself, and just my life just turned around. I was, was discipled by someone, began sharing my faith, went on a couple of missions projects over the summertime, and just really felt like God had called me into ministry. And uh, so I served with Campus Crusade for 11 years, and during that time, I also went to seminary, and went to Talbot Seminary, and did my master's degree, and then I was working with Campus Crusade at UCLA, and that's where I met my wife. She was a student, and she was actually in my Sunday school class that I taught. And uh, I did a little after-hour discipleship, you know, and uh, we fell in love, and we got married as soon as she graduated from UCLA, and then I graduated from seminary, and we, we both went on. She came on staff with me. We were in Santa Barbara and served up there, and then uh, I went on staff with a church in Santa Barbara, and then I was a pastor in Thousand Oaks. Went back to seminary, did my doctoral work at, at Talbot in Christian leadership and church growth. I've been a pastor uh, ever since that time. Uh, we have three kids, and uh, they're all in Christian ministry. My son's a pastor in Redondo Beach. My middle daughter is works at our church as uh, on our youth staff. She's overseeing youth discipleship. And then my youngest daughter is a missionary with an organization called Missions Me. Um, got three grandkids, and my wife is a women's speaker and author. In fact, that's why I'm up here by myself. She's writing a book right now on conflict resolution, and so she thought probably that she would have less conflict if I was outside the house, and she could actually have something to say in, in writing the book. So I'm up here. But uh, we, we love our family, love our lives together. Um, I the church I pastor is Crossline Community Church in Laguna Hills. I'm the founding pastor. Our church has been around for 17 years. Um, I'm the youngest in the family, so, you know, you, that tells you a little something about me. I'm an ENFJ on the Myers-Briggs. Any, anybody have ever done the Myers-Briggs? You know anything about that? So E is for extrovert, N is for intuitive, uh, F is for feeling, and, and J is for judging. You know, on the Enneagram, anybody do the Enneagram? You know that kind of thing? I'm a two-wing three on the Enneagram. Uh, uh, the uh, strength finders, anybody do the strength finders? Yes, so my number one characteristic is positivity, uh, then relator, then strategic, then activator, and then futuristic. So I'm a people vision kind of guy. That's, that's it. Does that make sense? Yeah. But notice in none of those strength finders is, is there the get things done kind of strength. I always need somebody to help me get things done. Because I love people and I love having vision to do things. But I need people to help me actually get them done. Uh, so there's just a little bit about me. I'm just sharing my, my spiritual gifts, teaching, evangelism, and apostleship. So there you go. And here is a friend, a little grasshopper just flew in the room. Yeah, hello. So uh, that's a little about me. Uh, this is what we're going to be dealing with over the next week. Uh, I, I, I joke because I, 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 I love speaking, teaching at these kind of uh, 
uh, events and, and conferences. So I, I went back to school during COVID, worked on another doctorate in theology and apologetics. I'm writing my dissertation right now. I should have it finished by the end of this year. So I'm writing my dissertation on our identity in Christ and how knowing who you are in Christ affects your spiritual transformation. So I always tell the people who ask me to come speak anywhere, I say, well, I will come speak, but I'm speaking on your identity in Christ because that's all I'm reading and studying about. I can't, I can't put anything else into my brain at this time. So I got a couple people from my church here, and they asked me what I was teaching, and I go, well, actually, I'm going to be teaching on this in the fall at our church because this is what I'm studying. So this is what we get, our identity in Christ. So tonight, this is what we're going to talk about, how our identity determines our destiny. All right, our perceived identity, and you can, you, this can cross the board, whether this is spiritual or secular or just what's happening in today's culture. Someone's perceived identity, who you see yourself as actually being, that will determine the path you walk on and the destiny that you pursue. Um, I grew up in a family of readers. My mom is a reader. My, my dad, who passed away, but he was a reader. My brother and sister, readers. I didn't like reading. I was like the hyperkinetic kid playing sports, wanting to move around. In fact, I actually skipped a grade, not because I was smart, but fourth grade, I started fourth grade, I'd get all my work done, and then I'd just bug all the rest of the other kids in the class, so they didn't know what to do with me, so they, they moved me up into fifth grade. So I did not like reading, and I didn't really like studying very much. In fact, I was the worst college student. I, I, I tell people, there's hope, even if you don't do good in college, because I was able to go do a master's and do doctoral work. I graduated from San Jose State. Now, San Jose State is not the Harvard of the West. <laughs> but I graduated from San Jose State with a 2.4 GPA. You have to try to get a 2.4 GPA. Yeah, because I just didn't like, I, I loved everything about college, but studying and going to class, you know, it was just, so, uh, I'm out of college, and I've got a buddy. I was actually on a mission, on a mission trip, and I had a, a buddy who was talking to me about reading and what, what do you like to read, and I said, well, you know, I don't like to read. He goes, I mean, you never read like a good spy novel or anything like that? And I go, no, never read anything. He goes, oh, my gosh, you've got to read. Now, you got, this was some time back. This was before the movie. He goes, you've got to read this book. You'll love it. And I said, what it? I, he said, it's called The Born Identity. So this is before they made the movie. It's actually the book by Robert Ludlum. It goes, The Born Identity. Any, has anybody ever read the book, The Born Identity? Okay, well, it's a couple of you. So I, I said, okay, I'll read this book. The opening chapters of The Born Identity, I think I started at reading it at about 9 o'clock, at about 2.30 in the morning. I said, i got to put this book down and go to bed. Because here's the, this open idea. Here's the guy out on the ocean. They pick him up from the ocean. He's been shot, and he comes to, but he doesn't know who he is. But he can speak a bunch of different languages. And he doesn't even know how he knows all these languages because he doesn't know who he is. And then he, 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 they, they bring him back and he lands. This is in Europe. And he lands on the shore and he's walking and he hears these people talking. And there, there is a group of like a gang and they're going to jump him and, and, and mug him. And, and he, can, he can understand what they're saying. He doesn't know how, how he knows that language. And they're going to jump him. And then they come at him. And out of nowhere, you know, he knows like kung fu, jujitsu, and karate. He's like, ha, ha, And he beats all these guys up. And he's like, who am I? I know all these different languages. I know martial arts. Then it turns out he knows everything about weapons. And the whole book of the born identity is his, him coming to understand who he actually is. 
And then once he understands who he is, then he really does what he does. Because if you've seen the movie, The Born Identity, it makes it even clearer, right? So when you know who you are, it, it determines the path you're going to walk on. And that is really true in the Christian life. When we know who we are as Christians, everything that's become true about us in Christ, that term in Christ is used over 170 times in the New Testament. It is especially Paul's understanding of what it really means to be a Christian. When you understand that, that truth about being in Christ, it will determine the path you're to live, the purpose that you're to embrace, the, the focus of, of your entire life. It, it dramatically gets changed because of understanding who you are. Because what the Bible says is that at salvation, what God did is he put all that's true about Jesus into us as believers. And we've actually been per, uh, placed into Christ. The Bible uses several different uh, New Testament words, but we, we're placed into the sphere of Christ. We're identified with Christ. Christ is in us, and we're in Christ. And when we stand, come to understand some of the nuances of what that actually means, it will actually determine the destiny of our lives. I was sharing Christ with a guy uh, at the gym where I work out, and I'd got to know this this guy. His son went to school with my son, and he was he was a great guy. And uh, we we were sitting outside after working out. The gym has a little lap swimming pool, and we were sitting out there. And I I asked him, you know, the kind of the, the, this is the kind of standard evangelism explosion questions. I I, I said, if uh, if you were to stand before God, and He was to ask you why I should let you into heaven. What would you say? And he said, well, you know, I've been a good guy and I've gone to church. Uh, love my family. And uh, that was about it. And I said, that's what you'd say? Now, you've got to understand, I kind of had a little relationship with this guy. So I, I said, that, that's what you'd say? And he said, yeah. I go, that's what you'd say. You stand before God, that's what you'd say. And he said, yeah. I started laughing. I go, oh, my gosh. I went, oh. He goes, what are you laughing at? I go, I go, come on, you, you run a company, right? And he goes, yeah. I go, you ever have people apply for a job? He goes, yeah. When they apply for a job, they give you a resume, right? He goes, yeah. Would peop, someone give you like a crummy resume if they were looking for a job? He goes, no. He goes, if, if it's not a good resume, you're not even going to look at them as a candidate, right? He goes, yeah. I go, so if I wrote what you just said down, and that was the resume that you were handing to God, do you think God would let you into heaven? And he started laughing. He goes, no, you're right. That is a crummy resume. And we're both sitting out there laughing. I said, in fact, do you know, there's only one guy who's ever lived whose, whose resume, if God looked at it, he'd say, yeah, you deserve to get into heaven. And I said, who do you think that was? He said, well, it'd have to be Jesus. I go, yeah. I go, so here's the trick. The only way that any of us can get to heaven is we got to get what's on Jesus' resume into us. And then from there, I went on and explained the gospel to him. That's exactly what Romans chapter 5 at the end explains. It explains that what God has done is he's taken what's in Jesus' resume and he's actually superimposed it upon us and put it in our resume. So the truest thing about us is our new identity in Christ. So if you have your Bibles, you can look at this. I think they'll also be up on, on the slide. But this is Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. 
And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed the one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass, there was condemnation for all men, so as a result of one act of righteousness, there was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if I didn't say anything else about that passage, I would imagine that some of you, about halfway through my reading, kind of went, you know, you started going into full rim. Because it has a bunch of theological words, some of these big Bible words. But I've learned that big Bible words mean something. And when we understand what they mean, it can really change our life. Um, You know, theologians tend to make simple things sound really complicated. Communicators make complicated things sound simple. I'd rather be a communicator, but I got to be a little bit of a theologian to to back up what I'm communicating. So um, let me just pose some questions to this passage and, and show you how it talks about our identity and then relate that to how our identity determines our, our destiny. So here's the first question. How did sin come into the world? This is like a catechism. How did sin come into the world? Well, it says in verse 12, therefore sin entered the world through one man. Sin came into the world through Adam. Before Adam sinned, we were in the garden. I said this morning in my message, you know, my first profound thought, we're not in the garden anymore. But there was a time when humankind was in the garden. And in the garden... They were in perfect fellowship with God, and there wasn't any sin. The serpent tempted Eve. Eve was deceived and ate, but since God had given his command through Adam, it was Adam's responsibility for the human race. And Adam willfully chose to sin, and when Adam sinned, sin invaded humankind. So sin came into the world And it says that death came as a consequence of sin. So when sin came into the world, it had a a pervasive effect. Uh, Anybody here ever see the movie or read the book, The Andromeda Strain? Oh, a couple of people, man, it's awesome. Man, this is great. Yeah, same people. Man, see, we've got to get together and compare all these books that we've read or or movies that we've seen. Okay, so Andromeda Strain. The short story on the Andromeda strain, uh, this 
this object comes out of outer space and lands in the desert, and then everything that's near it dies. Birds fly over it, and it dies. Everything dies that's, that's near it. And so these scientists go, and they're in these hazmat suits, and they get it, and they're, they're trying to study what it is, and uh, they call what they've discovered the Andromeda strain, and it had the potency so that any exposure, it just affected everything. And so that, you know, they were afraid this will wipe off the entire population of the earth and all creatures in the earth because it'll, it'll just grow and affect and multiply and kill everything. Well, that's what sin did. Adam's one sin got passed on to every person so that every human being is affected by sin. And Romans chapter 8 says creation has actually been affected by sin. So we live in a fallen world. We are fallen people living in a fallen world. That's, that's the bad news. You know, and you got to know the bad news to appreciate the good news. You got to know the bad news of sin to appreciate the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But sin came into the world through Adam, and the external world and human nature has been affected by all of our personal relationships are affected by sin. In fact, I know this is going to come as a shock, but I'm a sinner. In fact, you can turn around and look at one another and say, I'm a sinner. I give you permission to, 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 to say that to, to one another. Yeah. In fact, you're sitting next to a sinner. You're sitting behind a sinner. You're sitting in front of a sinner. We're all sinners. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Well, why have all sin and fall short of the glory of God? Because sin came in the world through Adam. Well, here's the second question. What is the consequence of sin? Well, I've said it already, but the Scripture says this. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. That's verse 12, verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass, for the many died by the trespass of the one man. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man. Verse 21, so that sin reigned in death. What's the consequence of sin? Death. Death. And death in the Bible is not cessation, something stopping. That's what we think. Oh, they died. They stopped living. Death is not, did you find that grasshopper right there? <laughs> there you go. Pay no attention to the woman taking the grasshopper outside. I learned in communication school that if something happens that everybody notices, you have to draw attention to it. But, you know, so everybody noticed that she got up, so I drew attention to it, see? Sin came in the world. Death came as a consequence of sin. Death is not cessation. Death is separation. Separation. So there's spiritual death, people being separated from God. There's physical death, the soul being separated from the body. And there's eternal spiritual death, being separated from God for all eternity in a place the Bible calls hell. So death and all of the symptomatic expressions of death, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of that, it's a consequence 
of sin. Death is a consequence of, of, of sin. When I, was, um, when I was in seminary, my last semester of seminary, I took this class on Christian education. I don't know. I, I, it was one of those courses you had to take. I didn't have a whole lot of interest in it, but I had to take it anyway. And at the beginning of the class, the professor gave everybody a plant. Now, I, I knew what he was going to do with this whole thing. And the whole thing was about how we nurture and how we have to nurture people. And so he took this plant and you had to bring the plant back when at the end of the semester. Well, I put the plant on, up on my, in front of my sink, but I kind of forgot about the plant. And I didn't nurture the plant. I didn't take care of my plant. And my plant died. Now, they say confession is good for the soul, but it's, it's bad for the reputation. Because I seriously thought of buying a different plant <laughs> and taking the new plant back to say, I took care of it, but I decided to take my lumps, and I realized I wasn't the only one. About half, of, half the people came back with their plants dead, and of course, the professor said, you know, plants are like people. You've got to take care of them. If you don't water them, they die. So that's the whole point. My plant died. <laughs> Death is a reality because of sin. People die, and people who don't know the Lord are spiritually dead. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 says. It, it says, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit who's not work of the sons of disobedience. And we all too indulge the flesh uh, and the lust of our minds. And we were like the rest, children of wrath. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a spiritual reality, but it's a consequence of, of, uh, of sin. So physical, spiritual, and eternal death are all a consequence of sin. So here's the third question. You tracking with me on these questions? Trying to make it simple, trying to bring what could be really deep to this simple, understandable. But we're going somewhere because I'm going to try to share with you how identity determines destiny. So here's the third one. Do I sin because I'm a sinner or am I a sinner because I sin? Now this isn't one of these stupid theological questions. You know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? You know, it's not one of those types of things. It, it's actually a question, believe it or not, that has some significance. This is what the Scripture says, because we're looking at all out of this passage out of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. Verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. When it says the many were made sinners there in uh, Romans uh, 5.19, it's the Greek word kathisteme, which means to set down. It's kind of like if I take this Bible and set it down, but it has more significance than just setting it down. It, it's basically now, I'm placing that there in terms of this is its identity, where I placed it. So we were, just as through the death of the one man, that's, that's Adam's sin, the many were made Sinners, We were set down, constituted, seen in our identity as sinners. So people sin because they are sinners. No, one's, no married person here has given me any argument on that. <laughs> because if you're married, you're married to a sinner. No parent of a two-year-old is giving me any argument on that. Because that precious, to my, my precious granddaughter, my precious granddaughter who loves me and jumped in my arms and says, Pops, will run away from me when I say, come here sometimes. 
Where did she learn that? It's in her. It's, it's in her. Because she's a sinner. We, we come into this world dead in trespasses and sins. And we have worth, tremendous worth. We're created in the image of God. We have so much worth, Jesus died for us. So we're not talking about that, but we're talking about our, our identity. We came into this world dead in trespasses and sins. And we sin because we're, we're, we're sinners. Um, and Adam was the probationary man that represented the human race in this whole deal. Okay, now I'm going to throw out another movie. Not, this is not a book. I mean, it might be a book, but I just saw the movie. The movie Troy. Has anybody seen the movie Troy? Why are all, it's mostly guys raising their hands, I know, and, and reluctantly the, the wives. And the, yeah, okay. What? Yeah, there you go. I didn't read it, you know. Probably was assigned in college, but was, you know, I wasn't a reader, so I didn't, I didn't read it. So, you know, um, in, there's a scene in Troy where Agamemnon invades Thessaly. And he comes up to the king of Thessaly, and he says, uh, we've come here to take your land. And the king of Thessaly didn't like that. And so he's got all his soldiers there, and Agamemnon's got all the sol- his soldiers here. And uh, he said, okay, let's do it the old-fashioned way. You have your best fighter, fight our best fighter. And so the king of Thessaly goes, yeah, I like that. So the king of Thessaly looks back over his army, and he goes, Boagrius! Boagrius! The biggest dude I've ever seen in my life. The biggest, ugliest dude comes out. The guy's actually like a, a strong man, an Australian strong man. He's like seven feet tall, weighs 350 pounds. He's huge. He comes out, and of course they got him all marred up. You know, he's got this uh, face. He's like, like this. And he's, he's like the dude that's going to represent Thessaly. So Agamemnon goes, Achilles! Achilles! And Brad Pitt shows up. And in the movie Troy, you know, Brad Pitt does his little dance, comes up, and and then kills, you know, Boagrius. Boom, dead. In that one match between Brad Pitt, you know, playing Achilles, and Boagrius, that one fight, it was a whole army representing another army, and even though one guy died, Boagrius, all these soldiers now became servants of Agamemnon. You know, the same thing happened in the Bible. There's a biblical story. What's the biblical story? David and Goliath. Wow. You know, David goes down in the valley of Elah. He slays Goliath, and all the Philistines take off running, and then all the army of Israel take off chasing him, and they just totally rout him and, and defeat him because it was one guy representing the whole race. Adam represented the human race. Our, our ancestor Adam represented the human race, and he sinned, and the whole human race was plunged into sin. And we all inherit from Adam a sin nature. Now, I just taught you using the movie Troy and the Bible story of David and Goliath, the theological doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin. Man! See, I could have been a theologian talking about, oh, there's various views of imputation of Adam's sin, blah, 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 blah. Or I could just tell you a story, and it's like, you get it now, right? So Adam, he blew it. He sinned the whole human race. So we are born sinners because of Adam. So what's our identity outside of Jesus Christ? We're dead in trespassing sins. 
If that was the whole story, you know, we'd be in a heap of trouble. But see, you got to know the bad news to appreciate the good news. The good news. Because this, this doctrine of imputation, that's the theological doctrine. It works both ways. So we inherited from Adam sin and all of its consequences. But when we're born again spiritually, guess what? We inherit from Jesus all of what Jesus gives us, which is grace and righteousness and a brand new identity. And it's true because God says it's true. It's true because God says it's true. And that's what, that's what Paul's doing in this passage. He's comparing and contrasting what we have in Adam with what we have in Christ. And every person, every person, every person in this room, every person on the planet is either in their fundamental identity in Adam or in Christ. In fact, if I, if I had it up here like I had a circle here and a circle over here, and this circle is everything that's true of Adam and what human beings have in Adam and everything that's true of Christ and what you have in Christ, when you come into this world, you're here. This is, and you can, you can get educated. You can, you know, read the book on how to win friends and influence people. You can be a nice sinner or you can be a rotten sinner, but you're still a sinner. When you come to believe in Jesus Christ, you're now placed into this circle. So everything that's true of Christ is now true of you. Now, you might be ignorant of it, and as a result of being ignorant of it, you don't fully live out the identity. But once you come to know the truth, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. I'm all for getting free. That means i got to know the truth and appropriate it on a daily basis into my life. So, fourth question, which I kind of just said it. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of say it real quickly. If the question is, what does it mean to have my spiritual identity in Adam? It means that I'm a slave of sin and death. So in Adam, outside of Jesus Christ, I'm a slave of sin and death. I'm dead spiritually. I'm not just sick spiritually. I'm not just dysfunctional spiritually. I mean, if, if, I, had a, if I had a cadaver here, a medical cadaver, which by the way, when I was in the, my working for Campus Crusade for Christ at UCLA and my last year of seminary, um, there's a, a Christian mortuary, the Pierce Brothers Mortuary. They had a mortuary in Westwood, California, right next to UCLA. And they had a guest house on it. And they said, you know, if you're a seminary student, you, you can live here for free. So I lived in the guest house at the Westwood Village Mortuary. Marilyn Monroe was buried there. Some other movie stars are buried there. And I'd walk, just walk up to UCLA campus, and then I'd drive down to Talbot Seminary. They got to live there for free. But, you know, it's a mortuary. Not <laughs> I had my best friend's bachelor party at the chapel at the mortuary. We made him lie in the casket. And we, we, we gave eulogies. He was about to get married, you know, so we gave eulogies like he was past. You know, he's, he's going off to that other world, and we made him, we made him lay in the morning. That's the whole thing. Anyway, um, if I had a cadaver here, and I said, okay, you know, uh, this is an object lesson for all these people, so would you get up, please? Come on, get up. Hey, get 
up, get up. No matter how hard I yelled or kicked, that cadaver's not getting up. You know why? It's dead. There you go. It's dead. We were dead in trespasses and sins. So if, if you have a hard time understanding how you're saved by grace, it's because you think better of yourself than the actual truth. See, because we're dead, we couldn't save ourselves. The only way we could get saved is God had to save us. God had to make us alive. That's why, that's why it says, so here's the flow of, he, of, of, of Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you formerly walked in the course of this world. According to the principality of the air, the Spirit's now working in the sons of disobedience. We all too were like the rest. We were indulging the flesh and the mind. We were, we were children of wrath. But God, who being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. See, God made us alive. Because in Adam, we just have sin and death. So here's the fifth question. Well, what does it mean to have my spiritual identity in Christ? Here in Romans Chapter 5, verse 15 says, But the gift is not like the trespass. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ? So also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So in Christ, having my spiritual identity in Christ, I'm righteous. I'm covered with grace. I, I have life. I have eternal life. What's true about Jesus has now been made true for me. So we're going to see over the course of this next week, we actually died with Christ, we were raised up with Christ, we've been seated with Christ. That's our spiritual identity. We've died with Christ, we've been raised up with Christ, we've been seated with Christ. According to Ephesians chapter 1, our spiritual identity is we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You already got it. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Because my spiritual identity has been transferred from being in Adam to being in Christ. And the truest thing about me now is what God says is true. So, again, just to help me kind of think what that might mean, let's say that I was a very, very wealthy person and I decided to just bless you and I deposited $10 million in your bank account. Yes, you've got $10 million. Now, if you didn't know that I gave you $10 million, you would probably not be living any different than you have been living. If I told you, if you heard a sermon and someone said, oh, by the way, you've got $10 million bucks, you probably wouldn't believe it. Say, sounds good, don't believe it. But if I actually were, was able to convince you, I gave the, the bank statement, had the bank president, I had the proof, you've got $10 million in your bank account. Now, you don't have to tell me what you did, would or wouldn't do, but would your life be somewhat different if you had $10 million in your bank account? Yeah. See, you'd, you'd access it. Maybe you'd give it away. Maybe you'd buy a house. Maybe you'd give it to missions. Maybe you'd give it to Hume Lake. 
but you do something with it once you became aware that you had it. Spiritual identity is like that. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, but if we don't know that that's true, we can't be set free by the truth. If we've heard that that's true, but we don't really believe it, we can't be set free by the truth. We can only be set free by it once we hear it, believe it, and act upon it. And that's the key to living transformed lives. Knowing your identity in Christ, believing it's true because God says it's true, and then acting upon it. That's, that's Thursday night's discussion. But at this point in time, what I want us to know, realize, is that we have a brand new spiritual identity. And because we have a brand new spiritual identity, we got a new destiny. We got a destiny of purpose. We had a destiny of fruitfulness. I was thinking about this as I was walking around the lake. This, this, isn't, this isn't even in the, this isn't even in my notes. This is just like an extra little biblical truth, a little nugget. John 15, Jesus said, John 15, 16, You didn't choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to go and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father, he may give to you. So what's our identity according to that? We have been chosen and appointed by Jesus to go and bear fruit, and that fruit will remain, and we can ask Jesus for whatever we wish, and he'll give it to us. So in the context of John 15, we're branches. When we, when we come to understand our identity as branches and what Jesus has said about what it means to be a branch, and we connect and abide in Jesus as branches, then we're going to live fruitful lives. Our identity will determine our destiny. So if we see ourselves, you know, not what we might say at church when people greet us, but what we, what we really think, if we think, I'm just, I'm a second-class Christian. Christian life works for other people. It doesn't work for me. I'm, ju- I'm just a, I'm a, I'm a product of a dysfunctional family. I'm a, I'm a person who's just stuck. I'm just a carnal Christian. I'm just a mediocre believer. I'm a terrible husband. I, you know, I suck at the Christian life. The Greek word sakao, that's what that was taken from. So if that's what we think, then guess what? That's how we're living. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm talking about the power of biblical thinking, the power of truthful thinking. I'm no longer a person who's dead in sin. I'm a person who's alive in Christ. I'm no longer a person who's a slave to sin. I've been set free. I'm a, I'm a person who has the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. I've been forgiven for all of my sins. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I've been co-crucified, co-resurrected, co-seated with Jesus Christ. I'm a branch connected to the true vine, and I've been told by Jesus that I'm going to go and bear fruit, and my fruit's going to remain. If I see myself that way and I embrace that before God in faith and I step out in the power of the Holy Spirit and obedience, my life is transformed because my identity is determining my destiny. My identity is determining my destiny. So knowing what's true about us in Christ literally transforms our lives. Tomorrow night, we're going to talk about What's true about us is that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 and unpack all those spiritual blessings and talking about how we can live a blessed life because we have been blessed. So let me, let me pray for us.
Father, thank you for just this introduction to this whole idea of what's true about us. And I, I praise you, God, because you made it true for us, because you love us and you saved us. You thoroughly saved us. And in, in being saved, we become new people. And uh, there's such a, a rich inheritance that's ours in Christ. I pray that you'd help every person here, every believer, receive that, understand that, and act upon that. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to the truth of your word, and may the truth set us free. And I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.